Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas, standing in as host this week. Well, what to say? A week ago, Kwasi Kwarteng was Chancellor of the Exchequer. 48 hours ago, Swella Braverman was Home Secretary. And an hour ago, Liz Truss was, well, at time of recording, we are not quite there yet. The Institute for Government's mission is to promote effective government. And while at a time of political turbulence like this, it's important to remember that in the background, services are being delivered, decisions are being made, and the basic cogs of the government machine are still turning. Nobody could, with a straight face, say that the last month has been one of effective government. And for all the turmoil at Westminster, that has real consequences for people struggling to heat their homes or feed their families, and for the UK's reputation abroad with friend and foe alike. So as the political drama continues, let's take a look at what it means for government. We'll reflect on the week just gone, dig into what next for the economy and for public services, and then take a step back about lessons from the last six years of turbulence. With me are two colleagues, the yin and yang, the Lennon and McCartney of finance, economics and government at the IFG, uh, Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist. Hello, Gemma. Hi, Alex. And senior fellow Giles Wilkes. Hi, Giles. Hi, uh, hi, Alex. And can I bag see Paul McCartney there? <laughs> You'll fight Gemma for that. And I'm uh, delighted to be joined by Henry Newman. Henry's been a Conservative councillor, senior special advisor to Michael Gove, Francis Maud, and most recently, Boris Johnson in number 10. Henry, welcome. Thanks. I don't know which beetle I get to be, but great. <laughs> you, can, you can choose. Um, so let's start with the week that was uh, and with Henry. What's your temperature check on the state of the Conservative Party right now? I think it's absolutely feverish. I mean, there's a sort of widespread sense of despair that's been sort of growing over the last few uh, days. It's been pretty high, really, for quite a long time, though. Uh, and it just feels utterly unsustainable. I'm yet to meet a single person who in private thinks the Prime Minister's uh, future is anything more than a few days. Now, that's bounced around a bit. There were periods when just after Quasi, uh, quoting um was sacked or fired, it's not really, uh, or, or resigned. Uh, she managed to just about buy herself some stability with Jeremy Hunt, who did that by essentially trashing all of her previous policies. Um, and then yesterday, it's sort of, or Wednesday PMQs, it seemed that she just about got through it with a uh, you know, sort of fighting approach, borrowing words from uh, Peter Manderson, of all people. Uh, but then quickly, the whole afternoon descended into chaos with um, shenanigans over a uh, the government trying to whip something that was breaking a manifesto pledge, making it into a question of confidence, the chief whip herself failing to actually vote on that uh, that very uh, matter, and then uh, resigning or telling colleagues that she'd resigned and then unresigning. Uh, so it's just difficult to really read where this goes, other than I think what is completely certain is there's no chance of Liz Truss leading the Conservative Party into the next general election. So it's a matter of when she goes rather than whether she goes. And uh, as we're recording, Graham Brady's in number 10, uh, uh, talking to the Prime Minister. Uh, so we'll see what, what comes of, of that. I mean, uh, Henry, you, uh, I saw you wrote on the Conservative Home website, uh, uh, I think yesterday, about the need to return to the 2019 manifesto does that whoever's prime minister does that does that offer a way out i think it i think it does i think it offers a baseline i mean i think you've got to be realistic that of course things have changed that uh, there's been uh, you know war, war in the european continent uh, and a covid pandemic uh, as well as a huge deterioration in the economic situation so i'm not sort of pollyanna i don't think that offers a kind of a, a perfect solution but i do think uh, two things one that the manifesto offers a baseline that mps should at least be able to agree is the uh, the sort of the, the start of their public mandate. 
And I think the other thing is, I think that conservative governments in general should try not to pointlessly reverse their, their predecessors' policies, particularly if those policies have literally been put into law. So I think it's a small thing, but for example, on the obesity uh, uh, measures that the last few governments have been very keen to introduce, it is now legislation to uh, cap certain amount, portions of sugar in uh, in, in drinks. Uh, does it really make sense to undo all that? And I think there's a sort of there, there. I think a future prime minister would be well advised to use the manifesto as their basis for their policy program, but also just avoid needlessly trashing your predecessor's agenda, um, and then work out the areas on which you genuinely want to prioritize. But I, uh, I think you know, it will be getting the putting this sort of this. Um, uh, pulling this omelette back into eggs will be pretty difficult. Yeah. And uh, Gemma, we'll come on to some of those sort of impossible spending choices that this or a future government uh, will need to make in a minute. But uh, looking at the broader economic picture, this uh, uh, this turbulence isn't good with our uh, for the UK's reputation with the markets or internationally, uh, uh, is it? It certainly hasn't been good for our reputation with markets and internationally. Um Perhaps the only positive that's come out of it has been the coining of the wonderful phrase, the moron premium, the the extra <laughs> higher borrowing costs that the UK government is now facing because of the lack of credibility and sustainability in the sorts of policies that have been announced. Um, but I think beyond the sort of reputational issues, which clearly are important, it's not good for the economy, for businesses, for households trying to make decisions about their long-term plans. It's just a lot of uncertainty that all of those people face. And that's not good for achieving the sort of economic growth that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng said were their objective. And Giles, how are the markets looking now? Has the, we've, we've had this sort of slight sense of stability, but that was before the latest round of political uh, turmoil, even though it's only a matter of uh, days. What does this sort of trust Sunak Shaps Troika, if that's what it, what it now is, need to do to, to survive and, and maintain some of this stability? Well, I mean, I can't myself describe anything that might keep Liz Truss wholly stable. But yesterday, there was a moment from about two o'clock until five o'clock, we saw further declines in future government borrowing costs, which was encouraging. And I, I wonder whether it was the gilt market actually getting ahead of the news that Suella Braverman was being eased out of the Home Office and a pro-growth immigration policy was being chosen instead. And although this might not be immediately impact on the ability to afford government borrowing, it's a really good signal if the growth people are in charge. And so that was good yesterday. And then the market shuts at five. Between five and nine, the most astonishing um, fiasco takes place in the House of Commons, seeing people wrestling each other into the voting lobbies and um, resigning and not resigning and so forth. And when we came in today, that was reflecting again in the guilt markets, taking a bit of panic. And then again, they've turned down in the next last few hours. So my only conclusion is it's becoming very um, stressful trying to refresh the browser every five minutes and seeing what the latest view is. But it's clear the market is looking for... Um, just a sign that there's sort of grown-ups and stability in there. So at least I think it's fairly clear in the eyes of the Treasury officials what needs to be done in order to reassure those markets and make them no longer a factor in our day-to-day policymaking. And Henry, what would you be, I mean, looking at the scenes last night and, and, and uh, how it's playing out in Parliament, what, what would your advice to a Prime Minister be in this situation? I mean, I just think it's it's difficult to know where to really begin when there's been so many sort of uh, enormous errors of uh, approach and policy, right? and then also so many kind of tiny unforced errors. Um, and I, I'm not claiming that uh, the ministers that I've worked for have got everything right, because obviously they didn't, or indeed that I always give good advice, because I certainly uh, got 
many, many things wrong, but this just seems of a completely different scale. And I also think that, I mean, if we sort of step back and think a bit more about the economic picture, which um, Charles and Gemma are much more qualified than I am to talk about, but every conservative government that I can remember, every government that I can remember is interested in growth. The idea that this is somehow a sort of new trustian approach is, 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 is rather bizarre. And the conservative manifesto that we we're talking about a minute ago obviously was interested in, in growth. Um, one of the key problems with growth in Britain is uh, the, the regional differences in productivity, the levelling up agenda that Boris Johnson uh, was so passionate about was designed to try and address that, in part through uh, greater public investment in uh, infrastructure and skills and so on. Um, and I think there's a sort of danger that we, we we sort of managed to forget that previous governments were also interested in this question. And that ultimately, um, low, it's not that directly clear that low taxes or supply side reforms are the best routes to greater growth. The best routes to greater growth, surely, is either demography or productivity. The, the other thing, I mean, it's you talked domestically there, uh, but and a sort of uh, potential forward-leaning uh, agenda for a, a government. The other thing that strikes me at the moment is we're um, we're so consumed by this political and economic crisis is there is as Henry mentioned there's a uh, you know the the uh, uh, fallout from uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is in a very very you know hot phase the war there there's a crisis in Iran um, there's there's just a lot hitting and buffeting a government um, I mean uh, Giles and Henry uh, you've you've been in governments in crises what how is a prime minister, how are secretaries of state actually functioning while the political crisis is happening, but they're having to respond to these very major uh, shocks that are happening across the world? What I'm hearing in kind of in government today, certainly, is that all the kind of key meetings are being cancelled and it's gone into sort of full-blown crisis mode. And I think that does have an effect. Um, and as, as Giles was sort of talking eloquently a minute ago about the, uh, the sort of changes in the bond market in real time, I think the problem is that this won't be settled until we have clarity about the future leadership of this country. And um, therefore, that all the rest of the details are kind of um, are, are sort of are all the rest is ultimately a detail. The question is who is going to be the prime minister uh, and who is going to be their chancellor and how they're going to manage to get their business through the Commons. Charles, Henry was there during a crisis much more extreme than anything I had to experience because COVID, I think, was something no government had even conceived of as being having to ha- ha- having to handle. So, how that kind of thing affects the running of government, I can't report directly. I did experience what it was like to have a prime minister regarded as being in office but not in power for at least around a year, the last year of Theresa May's time. And one of the remarkable things is you can kind of keep the normal wheels of government turning if it's the right kind of sort of loss of power. Nobody thought that she was going to go imminently, i.e. the next day or the next week, which seems to be the case with Liz Truss most of the time. And an awful lot of things do not require that you bring in the Prime Minister's full weight. There's a kind of a Wizard of Oz character to Prime Ministerial power, which is that, you know, you don't know what's behind the curtain, but you don't normally want to risk it. So obviously, Theresa May was not in a position, for example, to sack a cabinet minister who wasn't responding in a timely fashion to a right round. But you could still continue at official level and special advisor level, working with officials, progressing things, having meetings, uh, amending papers, and keeping the wheels just gradually turning, so long as um, you weren't actually required to deploy that prime ministerial um, attention. Now, um, there's only so long you can go like that, and you do at least need a good start. You need some sense that the prime minister says, this is my policy area here, and I go forth and deliver it. And I don't think Liz Truss has even got that, because her original idea was this 
wrong-headed, low tax is the way to grow the economy method. That was entirely taken to pieces by Jeremy Hunt in the last week. And now there's nothing from her, as far as I can see, in terms of policy steer, apart from perhaps things like this immigration fight. So there's just a vacuum where there's a prime minister. And honestly, I don't know how the team around her operates. They will have no credibility in their conversations at lower levels with the rest of government, even if they do try to progress some kind of a policy. So it must be just abysmal in there. And Henry, there's a slimmed down number 10 that was announced at the beginning of this government. Do you think that's been a problem or any other thoughts on what that's Giles is well, isn't it? I think, the, I mean, I think uh, as Giles said, we did have uh, one of the biggest challenges I think the states faced in recent decades with the COVID pandemic. And it felt, uh, I was then in the cabinet office, that uh, the sort of the ship of state, the machinery of Whitehall came pretty close to falling over. It was absolutely extraordinary. But that was partly because we we're just trying to do so many different things. And it was hard to know really when to begin. We were essentially creating a command economy overnight as we were shutting down different bits of, uh, um, of, of commerce and so on. But I think this is, I mean, you, you asked about the changes in number 10. I think the, the changes that the Prime Minister has made to the civil service have largely been underreported, but are extremely significant. Uh, the, the ousting of Tom Scholar, the National Security Advisor, uh, have been made public. But there are many more micro changes that she's made at um, sort of SES1, SES2 level and below um, on the basis of sort of personal fiat and dislike, which I think is uh, it's, it's coming home to roost now. Um, and I think this, um, I'm all for a, a smaller than number 10. I think the number 10 I worked in was too big. But I think the, the danger is that by purging anyone of actual experience, you make so many tiny unenforced, uh, unforced errors. You look at the kind of, um, the, on the, in the run up to her party conference, when the prime minister had been essentially a submarine for days in the middle of, uh, total economic turmoil. Uh, she then decided to record a GNS round with sort of about a dozen different BBC. That's the local uh, news. Local, yeah. di- different BBC news stations where she said slightly different things to each one. Uh, it's just, it was obvious to anybody watching that, that while you might normally do a, uh, a GNS media round in the run up to party conference, you would have been in a position where you weren't in a total economic freefall and the prime minister um, would have been doing a sort of daily clip or something to get her message across. Today, we've seen Graham Brady uh, try to slip into the back door of Downing Street uh, people who know Downing Street well know that the back door is not very, uh, it's not a very invisible place. And if she wanted to have a private word with Graham Brady, it might have been better to do so in the House of Commons. But I think, I just wonder whether there are actually people around her who are able to say any of this. What I've heard about her approach in meetings is that she's uh, not really particularly interested in challenge. Um, and it, it's difficult as an advisor to sort of know how hard to go. You know, you've you've done that job as well, Alex, on the civil service side. You know, do you, you know, how, how sort of strong are you in putting forward your view you can upset or annoy your principal uh, by going too hard. But equally, it's a, it's always a judgment question as to whether you should make your point made. So I don't blame anybody around her, but I do think the operation has been found severely lacking. Experience, cool heads and uh, uh, judgment at a premium in uh, number 10 in government at the moment, I think. Well, let's uh, move on then and talk a little bit more in more detail about, uh, yes, the economy, but also particularly uh, spending uh, cuts. Um, Gemma, whoever, whichever government we have, there are very likely to be extremely painful spending cuts on the way. And uh, with perfect timing, even if we do say so ourselves, we published our annual performance tracker on the state of public services this week. What what does that tell us about the choices ahead? Yes, you're, you're right, Alex, that even though we've seen Jeremy Hunt reverse 
large chunks of Kwasi Kwarteng's mini budget from the end of September, the sort of numbers that have been flying around for the the likely black hole and the new updated Office of Budget Responsibility forecasts suggests that he could still be looking for something like 30, perhaps 40 billion pounds of other tax rises or spending cuts to try and make the numbers add up and restore some sense of fiscal sustainability and credibility. So that does mean that, as he sort of indicated publicly, they are going to be looking around for cuts to public service spending. As you say, we've just published our sort of annual analysis of the performance of public services, which we do in partnership with SIPFA. And that paints a pretty difficult picture um, on, on that front. Services are struggling in lots of ways at the moment, um, sort of across the board of the major services that we look at. None of them are managing to perform as well as they did pre-pandemic. Um, the obvious things around the backlogs that we have in the hospital service, but also things like the criminal courts service struggling to catch up with the cases that stacked up during the pandemic. Um and in turn, uh, 2019 was also, after a decade of cuts uh, through the Osborne years, um, most services were struggling more than they had been um, back in 2010. So I think there's a sort of starting from a position where the money that was allocated by Boris Johnson last uh, autumn in the 2021 spending round, that was originally planned to be quite a generous settlement, particularly with quite a bit of money given up front to try and help services get back on top of the problems that had evolved during the pandemic. Uh, But over the past year, inflation has been much higher than expected. And partly as a result of that, public services have had to offer much more generous pay settlements than were expected this year. And so as a result, actually, across the board, services already don't have enough money, we don't think, to either catch up on the backlogs that they have or to meet the new demands that are going to come to their door over the next few years. So when you're starting in that position, and if there were any easy cuts to be made, then those were made during the 2010s, there's not a lot of low-hanging fruit left for the government to cut. So I think it's we're facing this time a much more serious question about if you want to save serious money and services, you need to be thinking about what are you willing not to do anymore, rather than thinking this can come from painless efficiency savings. So is there any mileage, do you think, in efficiency savings and the old sort of standby of, you know, saving money from the civil service and uh, uh, and, and so on? Or is it it's just a matter of really painful choices? I'd be cautious of saying there's no scope for any efficiency savings. There's almost certainly somewhere within the system, there is something that could be done more efficiently. But I think we need to be cautious of, well, very sceptical of suggesting there's much mileage in that. And even things where perhaps on the face of it, you might think there should be efficiency savings to be made. Actually, the evidence is is that things perhaps don't deliver the kind of cash savings for the public sector that you might expect. So for example, um, GPs doing uh, video or phone consultations with patients rather than seeing people in person. Um, As far as we can tell, that seems to be good for some patients. It saves patients time, but actually there's not a lot of evidence of it saving GP surgeries themselves uh, much in the way of cost. Similarly, um, we've been rolling out more remote hearings in the court system. There are definitely advantages to that 
not least to barristers who no longer have to hang around in courtrooms waiting for their case to be called. Um, but again, it's not doesn't seem to be generating much in the way of sort of cashable savings for public services themselves. And Henry, you, uh, we were both in the cabinet office when you were working with Francis Maud, uh, who oversaw a program of efficiency savings. What's what's your take on uh, uh, whether there's anything to do? I think if Francis was here, he would say he'd love to get uh, stuck into a new program <laughs> of, of savings. But I think he'd also say that those take a very long time, um, and they're normally not cashable in the first year. Uh, and I think what we saw at the sort of uh, attempts um, in sort of the sort of uh, early part of this year with a kind of top-down target to reduce the civil service was just utterly ludicrous um, and would actually have led to cost increases in the short term and the worst possible distorted behaviours as departments tried to sort of reclassify officials into uh, quangos and so on to uh, avoid the the acts. Um, I think clearly savings will need to be found, but I worry that uh, in the, the necessary rush to reassure the uh, bond markets, which I, you know, I don't, I don't dispute the the objective of that. Um, I think there's a danger that we sort of slightly over embrace a return to full. Uh, I don't want to sound Liz Trustian here, but Treasury <laughs> orthodoxy. The Treasury has always had things it doesn't like. Uh, it's it doesn't like the government's program of reforming social care, for example, um, and the the, the sort of re- the reports that the government's planning to again delay the introduction of the cap on social care. I think is. Yeah, it's very depressing. Um, equally, I think that, as, as Gemma was saying, a lot of the Johnsonian agenda of investment in uh, hospitals and uh, transport and so on is incredibly important. Uh, and it's also quite important for our long-term economic growth, particularly investment in uh, R&D and science and so on. So I think there's a danger that, um, that the new chancellor will be under huge pressure to find savings um, and therefore that he may slightly go for the sort of easier cuts. And that's where I think it's particularly uh, interesting to reflect on this row over the departure of, of Suva, Suella Braveman, where clearly at the root of it was a question of how the OBR scores uh, future predictions on migration. And the OBR, I think, is uh, taking the government at its word that it intends to halve uh, migration uh, over this parliament. And that, I think, uh, if, if, they, if the OBR was told, instructed to assume that migration would stay at current levels, that would give the government about £13 billion. Pounds. So I think this is one of the sort of things where there seems to be a clear uh, economic advantage, obviously, in scoring the current level of migration. Uh, and it's not saying that migration should increase, it's just saying it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't decrease. But there's, of course, huge political danger in that. And that's I think those two things uh, are obviously in collision there. And Charles, how do these decisions get made? You know, who's in the room? What, 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 are, the, what are the conversations that are happening between the, the Chancellor and the Chief Secretary to the Treasury and the civil servants, and then with Number 10 of the Prime Minister? To take us into the process a bit. Wow. Um, well, look, one thing I can reflect on is that it's changed greatly over the years. It used to be the case that, um, uh, that the Prime Minister would find out pretty much last um, I believe under Blair and Brown, and Brown would have t- done a lot of his workings, and then Tony Blair would be having to sort of send out sort of spies or, or friendly special advisors to say, "Could you find out what Gordon's up to with his um with his budget?" So um, we tried to improve that a little bit under the coalition. I think Cameron would have been much more involved in the decisions that were being made, but it was a it was a process of um, bilateral negotiation in many cases between departments and the Treasury for the big spending review of 2010, where we everyone had to take particularly large cuts. It was almost like a a game theory tournament where departments would work out whether they had a benefit to settle early with the Treasury and then sort of get off the naughty step and not be one of the ones subject to um, really difficult last minute um, 
uh, last-minute impositions from the centre. So it really does change from time to time. And in this case, I imagine the Treasury will be saying, look, it's us. We're going to have to go off and do this. Obviously, the Prime Minister can occasionally try to make some big statement and, and sort of corner them, as they she had with the triple lock statements on PMQs yesterday. But mostly, the Treasury, having been attacked as the orthodoxy for just a month ago, is now without much relish, I imagine, asserting itself terribly, saying, look, we are talking continuously to the government bond markets. We're the ones who know what is enough or not. You're going to have to take it. I imagine it's right now an internal treasury discussion with some political advisors, hopefully then wandering around saying, look, do you think this is wearable by the Department for Work and Pensions or the Business Department or or the capital spending departments. But I'd be very surprised if it wasn't primarily a treasury process all on its own. And do you think that can be done by the 31st of October, or is that just sort of completely for the birds now? It can be done. Um, it's not the ideal way of doing anything at all. As Henry alludes, the really good savings um, are to be found in long-term reform that takes sort of care and it's sometimes some kind of investment. So you don't get the savings immediately. And uh, it's, you know, real dialogue with stakeholders to try and find better ways of doing things. Whereas this is going to be quite abrupt. It's going to be looking at which budgets are underspent and might therefore not do too much damage, not require people to go back on contracts or political promises. It's going to be pretty ugly, but it's at least more time than when Kwasi Kwarteng stood up on the 23rd of September, just announced a whole load of things without any idea whatsoever as to how they were going to work out. Because remember, that was after the period of the Queen's mourning. Uh, there, there would have been virtually just a matter of days to do a couple of things. So I think by now the Treasury would have had a fair run-up at it, about the same amount of time as it would have had in 2010 when it had to arrange a, an emergency budget, which it did pretty competently. Yeah. And let's not repeat the uh, Quateng budget. Uh, yes. Gemma, there's, you know, there's, there's still stuff, for this, there are still, there's still things going on in government. There are programmes being implemented. There's investment in, 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 in capital spending. Is there, is there any, any sense that there, there can be a sort of... Uh, uh, forward uh, momentum on, on on public services with with the resources the government does have. I think, as you said before, Alex. I mean, clearly, public services to a large extent have to and are continuing to function um, on the sort of delivery end of public services that keeps going. Um, but the uncertainty about what budgets are going to be next year, possibly even the rest of this year, if government feels it needs to make quick savings um, definitely can't be helping those services to plan and figure out how most effectively to use the resources that they have. Yeah and a, a quick one to finish this se- section uh, Henry I'll, I'll, I'll lobby the, the political question which is whether the uh, do you think the, this has uh, trashed the Conservatives reputation for economic competence for you know the long term or is this just a short-term blip? I think it's I don't think you can be uh, you can pretend that this hasn't uh, caused severe problems for the Conservatives' reputation. I do think things are potentially recoverable, uh, but I think that depends how long uh, the current uh, the current approach uh, remains. I think if I was a ultimately the question of the survival of the Prime Minister is one for Conservative MPs. Um, they have her future in their hands. She, she's the head of the Parliamentary Party. But I think if I was uh, a Conservative MP, uh, one of the things I'd be reflecting on is that 
surely it's easier to turn around to the public and say, look, we made a mistake. Uh, we've changed our leader. We've changed our approach entirely uh, and points to uh, that as a sort of aberration rather than anything else. But I think, yes, of course, it's had an effect on the way the public sees things because it's a, it's a sort of version of, um, to borrow Colin Powell's phrase about uh, the Iraq war, the sort of you, uh, from, from the slogan apparently in Pottery Barn in New York, uh, you know, you, you broke it, you own it. It's, the, it's whether or not it's true that the um, quasi quoting mini budget was the sort of the only factor in causing uh, the rise of uh, uh, borrowing costs and so on. I think in the public imagination, it so overwhelmingly was. And it also felt that it was something that the government was doing, which was fundamentally unfair. It was trying to uh, privilege the most wealthy uh, with the abolition of the 45p rate at the moment of great economic difficulty for many. And therefore, the public in the public imagination, it was just the government wasn't on its side. And that's what I think has been so damaging. Thank you. So let's zoom out a little bit. We've touched on various of these uh, themes o- o- already, but let's think about the last few years of uh, UK government and uh, what we might be able to learn from it. Uh, I mean, Henry, st- staying with you, how does this compare to Boris Johnson's travails uh, uh, while you were in Downing Street? I think Boris Johnson had obviously a difficult time uh, of his premiership, uh, but I think he also achieved an enormous amount, uh, not least in um defeating an uh, anti-Semitic leader of the, leader of the Labour Party, uh, although except he's not here to defend himself, um, and uh, and uh, providing clarity on the central question of Brexit. But also, I think, through the COVID pandemic, the more that, um, the more that we're able to see uh, the sort of comparative data of the way that different uh, countries and different regions have faced, I think the better uh, England's approach and, and the UK's approach uh, seems. Uh, but obviously, there were difficult times. Um, so I, I I think it's kind of, but I think from being an advisor for my sort of roughly year in Downing Street, sitting around the edge of the room as decisions were taken, I grew uh, enormously in my respect for Boris Johnson as a politician, um, and I also think that one of the one of the, the great challenges of politics is that things often seem incredibly easy from the outside, but the reality is if you're working for a minister a Secretary of State, or even a Prime Minister, all the decisions you have to take are incredibly difficult. The choices are always between uh, bad or worse options on the basis of imperfect information under enormous time pressure with huge public scrutiny. And that, I think, is the uh, the reality of most of politics, and indeed, particularly now. And how does that, just staying with that point, uh, how's that different for a Prime Minister than a Secretary of State? Again, one of the things is just how different and difficult the job of Prime Minister is compared to even already very difficult Secretary of State level job. I think they are quite different. I think being a Secretary of State, you have your own sort of fiefdom. It's quite interesting sort of returning to a, after I left Downing Street, I worked briefly back in uh, the department, in a department, line department in the department of levelling up. And it's sort of, it's very different because you're in charge of your own sort of, uh, your, your Secretary of State is in charge of his or her own sort of policy areas. Of course, you've got number 10 trying to tell you to do various things and some of those things may be sensible or less sensible and so on. But um, however big number 10 is and the policy unit or the private office or whatever else tries to micromanage your department, ultimately it's the departmental, uh, it's the department's responsibility. The Prime Minister has a different problem. He or she has to face uh, deciding between all kinds of very difficult problems that are sort of landed on his or her desk, and they're not actually able to do any of those things themselves. They've got to go out and defend absolutely everything the government's doing. And I think one of the things is that we've seen with Liz Truss, she, uh, during the le- leadership race, we were told that she had this enormous uh, domestic experience. Indeed, she was the longest continuous serving cabinet minister. 
And yet she's found it extremely difficult making that tra- that step up, making that transition. And one of the things uh, to sort of end on a uh, an anecdote that isn't mine, but um, Frances Maud once told me that uh, as a sort of an insight into the way that prime ministers perhaps should be working, he wrote to um, uh, Margaret Thatcher, then prime minister, when he was a junior minister, setting out some very difficult problem uh, and expecting that she was going to sort of arbitrate between these different choices. Um, and after he sort of waited nervously uh, for a few days before the private secretary uh, replied and said, uh, the Prime Minister thanks you for this letter. She agrees it's a very difficult problem. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is sort of perhaps, I mean, obviously in very difficult and major things, you can't really do that. But I do think we've got to get back to the idea that cabinet ministers should be deciding what happens in their department. And the Prime Minister ideally needs to sit somewhere above that. And Charles, uh, Henry there mentioned the, the Theresa May comparison. You, you, you um, uh, worked closely with her. Our colleague Kath Hatton's made the point there's a bit of an indicative votes vibe going on at the moment with lots of uh, political red lines, lots of blood being, uh, metaphorical blood being uh, spilt in, in Parliament and too many competing interests about who might win and, 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 and who might, which faction of the Conservative Party might uh, I- emerge on top. Uh, does that make sense to you as someone who was, who was in, the, in the Theresa May bunker? Yes, although I would, I would add the modest caveat that I was not involved in any of the Brexit strategising. I was sitting there noted. watching, well, watching well noted. somewhat appalled. <laughs> but um, yeah, otherwise, obviously, it would have gone very smoothly. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, there, there is, I mean, there is a sense that there's something artificial about calling it the Conservative Party anymore. I mean, this party system that we have, which means that every party stays absolutely. Um, clinging on to power for as long as it can, even if it totally doesn't agree with itself, just seems all the more bizarre right now. There are so many different factions in there. To those of us on the outside, it seems bizarre that they would not simply choose a popular centrist figure like Rishi Sunak to come in and steady the ship. And yet there seems to be a large proportion of the parliamentary party and a very large proportion of the party in the country saying, we can't bear the guy. I don't understand it at all. But when a party isn't cohesive, it makes you wonder, to what degree can you really claim to be a governing party anymore? And in the 19th century, when the ideas were still being developed of what parties actually mean, the prime minister would just sit quite simply, honestly turn around to the monarch and say, I do not command a majority in the House anymore. I'm in fact not in charge of 350 whatever Conservative MPs, but a, a number far smaller. So yeah, there's definitely that sense that you've got lots of different shifting allegiances. And obviously the polling makes it even more crazy. When you've got polling that indicates what people are calling an extinction level event for the Conservative Party, which again is something that happened in 2019. You can remember when the Brexit Party and the Lib Dems and the Labour Party beat them, beat the Conservatives into fourth place, I think, in the European elections. And I was yep. building my own special swingometer for this out of sheer hilarity. And you were seeing results that suggested that maybe 50 Conservative MPs would be left. When that's going on, it changes the way everybody sees the um, the current circumstances. They start playing towards a very different game, which is total survival. And um, and you just don't have the sort of cohesiveness that normally is required to make our system work. So, yeah, there are definitely echoes of that last time with Theresa May, with a big exception for the Conservatives, that there isn't some kind of a saviour potentially coming over the hill. Mm. And Gemma, have you seen anything like this in terms of the political and economic fallout uh, watching the last six, seven years of UK government? Yeah, I don't think I have seen anything quite like this in terms of the politics, although I'm conscious at this point that my working career really only stretches back to the early 2000s. So a large chunk of that was pretty uh, stable and boring by current... Um, yeah, same here. <laughs> current states. Um, I mean, on the economics 
of this. I mean, the, the economic fallout, particularly the sort of market fallout from the past month has been quite extreme. Um, I think sort of behind all that, and I guess the, the problem that will still face this government or the next government, um, even once the politics have been stabilised, is that we face some pretty big and economic problems that we haven't seen in the UK or other developed countries for several decades with very high inflation, very high oil prices and instability on the European continent. So I think there are big economic problems there that aren't to do with Liz Truss that are still going to be there that this the government needs to sort of get a grip on once this is sorted out. And Henry, what next? Johnson for Prime Minister? I would say uh, never say never. I mean, I think sort of Stepping back to um, the point that Giles was making a minute ago, I think it's, things can change very precipitously in politics. And we've seen that uh, happen repeatedly. Um, as yeah, I think it, it was the Conservative Party polled at 9% in those European elections in 2019 that was just being referred to. Um, and I can't remember if it was the fourth or fifth, but it was certainly a dire result. And then Boris Johnson came in and then the Conservatives won a... Um, a stonking majority that hadn't been seen since the mid-1980s. And I do think that Giles is right, the party is looking like it's ungovernable. And I think that unless Conservative Party politicians remember that they like each other more than they um, would like to see a Labour government, then um, I think it's, it is going to be very difficult. But I also think it's a good thing that our parliamentary parties are broad coalitions. Uh, it's true, obviously, of the Labour Party as well, uh, which has had its own struggles. Um, I think that if with, without that, we'd end up in a kind of in a very different place where we'd have a very fractious politics. Um, if, if they, you know, of course, there'd be people who advocate changing our system, but I think it'd be a profound error. And I think that the uh, you know, parliamentarians have to come to the right conclusion about who the best person is to lead them. Um, and it seems that they've made a mistake and they're perhaps about to reverse out of that. And we won't get into the individuals necessarily, cause, not least because I think it's impossible to predict exactly what is going to happen in, in, in terms of the Conservative Party over the next few days. Um, but in terms of the process, uh, what would your recommendation be you know, to the Conservative Party? Is it an MP selection? Is it a coronation or a sort of emergence of a figure? Is it back to the membership? What, what do you think needs to happen? Um, again, I think obviously this question for MPs, but I think that the reality is that there's been a lot of obsession in the last few days about uh, will she face, face a vote and so on. I think if you look at the last three Conservative leaders um, who have left, we're becoming very Australian in our mm -hmm. uh, political approach, um, they've they've all done so without losing a confidence vote. Um, they, they ultimately the sort of the the, the men in grey suits, the man in grey suit, uh, Graham Brady. <laughs> I don't know if he actually wears a grey suit, but anyway, whatever suit Graham Brady is wearing, I associate blue suits with Graham Brady. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lovely mid blue. Um, but he's he's been able to sort of tell them that now is the time to uh, to fall on the sword and move on. So I don't know, and I think it's sort of I think it'd be difficult to have a process that went back to the membership. And I think what this this moment showed is that Liz Truss having one not a majority of MPs, not even the largest proportion of MPs, and then relatively narrowly winning uh, in the membership, more narrowly than David Cameron had, more narrowly, of course, than um, others had, and Boris Johnson had in the past. Um, she then chose to govern in a very uh, particular way, only re rewarding most of her supporters and not her opponents. I think that was a mistake. So I think people will be loath to send this question back to the membership. But the Conservative Party constitution does provide a break on that. It does suggest there has to be a choice offered to the membership. So I don't, I don't know exactly how it works out. Some people are saying papal conclave, wait till there's white smoke out of the top of some ghastly committee room in the Commons. But um, I think the key thing is that there needs to be a process that everyone can ultimately get behind. And Giles, I look to you for my sort of political betting advice. What price an election? General election, that is. 
the odds over the last few months have been that um, the chance of one next year is about one in six. So you tell me whether that's good odds. I think actually that's it might be slightly more likely than that implies. So that implies a sixteen percent chance, say, and we and I reckon it should be maybe a twenty-five percent chance. Just because things fall apart, and when they finally fall apart, there might almost be some sort of urge to have the whole thing done. But it cannot be the Conservative MP's first choice. If we can go from the last time they were in this situation. Under John Major, they hung on till the last possible moment, albeit the last possible moment now is an election in the depths of winter, which, given the state of the economy and people's energy bills, might be absolutely the worst timing ever. But I I would still put my money on it being in 2024 before all the leaves are off the trees. Yeah, for for what it's worth, I think that's that's probably right. And I don't think an election is the most likely outcome. But uh, I I do wonder if it's a little bit more likely than people think, because the you know the British Constitution tends to find a way, uh, and I, I wonder what will happen. Let's uh, let's let's draw it to a conclusion uh, there and say that's it for this episode of Inside Briefing. Uh, thank you for having me as the host, uh, un- unusually, and uh, uh, thanks to Gemma Tetlow, Giles Wilkes, and particularly to Henry Newman. Uh, really appreciate you joining us, and thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, all major platforms, and leave us a review too, please. Hopefully, a positive one. Uh, and you can also find recordings of IFG events at our sister po- podcast channel, IFG live including a recording of this week's event on how not to run a government lessons from liz truss's first 40 days as well as that performance tracker report on our website instituteforgovernment.org.uk along with all the latest ifg expert commentary 